I'm Camilla Janssen, I'm a GP working in the New Forest in Hampshire. This morning's webinar will be recorded and it will sit on the Wessex LMC education page for viewing at a later date. So if you can't watch the whole thing today, don't worry, there's always a chance to catch up. It will also be made into a podcast, which you can find on the Wessex LMC podcast channel. So please do share the resource if you do find it interesting. There'll be plenty of time for questions after each speaker, so please do put any questions in the Q&A box rather than in the general chat so that they're easier to see and we don't miss your question. So I'm really excited to bring this webinar to you today. It is a subject I am very interested in, real food and lower carbohydrate diets. It's an area that is gaining in popularity and it's growing a body of evidence to support their benefits. Even Boris mentioned it in a recent Twitter that he had lost weight and was feeling a lot better on a lower carbohydrate diet. Hurrah. So personally, I discovered the benefits on my own journey. I had a rare foot problem rendering me barely able to walk for over a, over a year. Having always undergone, uh, having already undergone a curative bone graft operation, this then failed and everything was looking pretty bleak. The only option was for another bone graft operation with pins and if this failed my ankle was going to need to be fused. I knew that I needed to do everything in my power to optimise the healing potential of this operation and by the way I will never take my limbs or being able to walk or my health for granted again. So historically I've always been incredibly active, a very sporty person, I've thrived on exercise and I haven't had to watch my weight. So suddenly being rendered unable to do activity of any sort for over a, a year was very difficult and my weight and hunger were both increasing despite trying to minimise calorie intake. I was trying to diet for the first time in my life, I was obsessed by food, always hungry and my weight wasn't reducing. I could associate with patients who had injuries or were older and weren't, be, weren't able to exercise as we gaily advise them to lose weight. So in my quest to optimise my chances of healing post-op, and also to curb my hunger and weight, I discovered the real food low carb approach. And I have had good result with this. I'm glad to say my bone graft has been a success and my weight has stabilized. I'm not hungry, I don't crave food and I have a lot more energy and feel better than I have for a long time. So having experienced the benefits firsthand, this is something I'm keen to share with patients and also increase awareness among colleagues regarding the benefits. It is a case of once seen, it is very difficult to unsee and the benefits do seem endless. So I think it is really important to address the root cause of a problem rather than having to end up medicating the poor result. So I'm not alone in my thinking. I'm now on a national WhatsApp group with other healthcare professionals who have also seen the benefits of this approach. And recently people were asked to send in a 30 second to two minute video of their stories. And we had over 20 submissions, a powerful collation of success, of success stories. And I wanted to start this webinar with a taste of video montage of just a few of these. So this is the first small taster. So Joe, if you are happy to share, that would be wonderful.
morning. I'm Dr. Claire Neeland, a GP. I've been using a lower carb approach with my patients for a number of years now for conditions such as type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and obesity. It's really opened my eyes as to how lifestyle can be used um, to treat and reverse chronic disease and really how the high carbohydrate ultra processed Western diet is the cause of so much chronic disease. Patients love the low carb, low carb approach, particularly when we start deprescribing and clinicians really enjoy it because we're not constantly giving patients more and more medication. I'll just briefly share with you a few graphs from the patients, uh, a couple of the patients I've used low carb with, and you can see the amazing and sustainable results that are achieved. In my opinion, low carbohydrate approach should be first line. Hi, I'm Dr. Sue Beckers, and as a GP, I've recommended real foods to my patients for health. But since 2018, I've been inspired and had training to use therapeutic carbohydrate restriction for diabetes in groups, in workshops, using books, and the great resources that are out there, speaking holistically to people and metabolically. And people love it. They see their weight and their HbA1c's change in the right direction at the same time as they give up medication, diabetes, hypertension, arthritis, and reflux. They feel well. So if this works, we should be getting this on the NHS. Thank you. Hello, my name is Dr. David Oliver, I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Kim Andrews, I'm also a GP and a gypsy in diabetes, and we work together at the Freshwater Health Centre in rural Essex. Here's a video to let you know what we've been up to. So our story starts around two years ago when we first heard about a low carb approach and started suggesting it to some of our family members and patients. And we soon began witnessing some spectacular successes. Meet my dad, he has been overweight my whole entire life. And so I suggested a low carb approach. And here is my dad just four months later, 23 kilos of weight down, pre-diabetes in remission and off his blood pressure medication. After a bit more research, we started recommending a low carb approach as first line dietary advice for our patients. I went to the Public Health Collaboration Conference in 2019, which I found really, really inspiring. Shortly after that, we launched the Freshwell Low Carb Project to try and spread the word across our community. We set up a website for our patients as a basic practical tool to help our patients get started. After starting our project we set a community weight loss target of one metric ton and we allowed the patients to monitor their collective pro progress um, via our beloved weight loss ometer which was kept in the waiting room and the project also spawned um, the Freshwell low carb meal planner um, which has now been downloaded over 6,000 times. This is a 68-year-old gentleman with type 2 diabetes who had been taking 72 units of insulin daily for 13 years. He went on to lose 15 kilograms in weight and his A1C fell from 55 to 42 and he is off all insulin and all his blood pressure medication. 
this man who presented in lockdown with new onset type 2 diabetes dropped his HbA1c from 114 to 41 in four months without medication. After about a year, much to our delight, our patients succeeded in losing their first metric tonne. We shared our results with the colleagues in the PCN and as a result, our first PCN low carb health coach Sharon started work late last year. Sharon set up the Calm Valley low carb support group on Facebook. Sharon now delivers a six week structured group education program via Zoom. Before each session, the patients watch a 30 minute recorded video which is presented by ourselves. Each session with Sharon lasts about an hour. The early results look really good and we are planning to clone Sharon into an army of health coaches. So that's a whistle-stop tour of the Freshwell Low Carb Project. We're now hoping to spread the word across our CCG and beyond, and we're in the process of writing a second recipe book and working on other tools to support our patients. Our patients have so far lost the weight of a small car, and our next target is a double-decker bus. It's Gail Gary and I'm a practice nurse. Back in 2014, a patient I was seeing reversed diabetes, and that got me really curious for more information. Since 2016, I've been offering a low carbohydrate approach to help improve and reverse pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure and obesity. In October 2019, I started group consultations for type 2 diabetes remission. Currently, 12 out of the 17 participants have an HbA1c below 48 millimoles. The average weight loss is 10.2 kilos and the average drop in HbA1c is currently 16 millimoles. One lady in the group has completely avoided insulin and reversed her diabetes, and two of the oldest participants, aged 72 and 79, who had diabetes for more than 20 years, have reversed their diabetes and come off blood pressure medication. This is a lady I've recently seen who has lost 45 kilos and dropped her HbA1c from 118 to 29 using a low carbohydrate diet and time-restricted eating. I've been a nurse for 22 years and I have never ever seen a drug regime that produces health results like this. Hi, my name is Dr Neil Moody-Jones. I'm a GP partner and diabetes lead for New Forest Primary Care Network. Um, I have the pleasure to work with Dr Camilla Jansen and Dr Nicola Osborne, who are also firm believers in the use of real food, low carbohydrate diet approach. Um, at the beginning of last year, we uh, introduced a new letter um, promoting the use of lower carbohydrate diets to our patients with type 2 diabetes um, and it included this page with examples of lower carbohydrate foods and also some links to some online resources. Um, these were new patients um, and we tracked what happened to the first 14 patients who received my letter. Here you can see the change in their HbA1c. All their HbA1c levels dropped, I've not excluded anyone. They just had a three-page letter, no medication, some had a conversation. Um, 12 out of 14 dropped their HbA1c level below 48. The average level dropped from 53 to 42. And you can see that even just after five weeks, people were dropping their levels significantly. I decided we really needed to spread this approach uh, and so I started working on a new website as part of our PCN website uh, which is now uh, live. Um, this includes Dr Unwin's diet sheet as published in BMJ Nutrition with permission um, and it also includes pages on each meal and here you can see also examples of various uh, lower carbohydrate alternatives for patients and we've had really nice feedback from patients and clinicians on our website. 
As a PCN, we um, hope to halt the growth of type 2 diabetes in our population. And I think my graph shows that this is potentially possible. Um, and also, we've got some catching up to do. We really want to try and put uh, over 100 patients into remission. Um, it'd be great if we could reinvest some of that drug budget into CGM, short-term CGM for newly diagnosed. Hello, I think we just lost Neil for the last two seconds at the end, but I think you will all agree that it's pretty powerful and compelling stuff. Um, now, I just want to double check with Graham because he's the next speaker coming up. Graham, is your connection okay? Can you just let us know? Your speaker's off, Graham. How are we doing? Are you, are you okay? Fingers crossed. Excellent. So I want to introduce Graham Phillips. He is the pharmacist that gave up drugs. He is going to talk about the obesity pandemic, hunger drivers and a lot more. So Graham Phillips is a pharmacist who reached the conclusion that this pill for every ill approach isn't actually healthy, nor is it financially sustainable for the NHS. He is hugely knowledgeable in this area and very well connected. I have him to thank for introducing me to David Unwin, who is speaking later, and as well as all the other healthcare professionals involved in the video. And um, it's a great way to enable sharing information and expertise. So thank you, Graham. Pleasure. Graham has won numerous awards for his work. His company, Prolongevity, was awarded Health Initiative of the Year for its programme, helping people to address their metabolic health disease with a personalized nutrition and lifestyle plan based on biometric data and blood sugar monitoring. He is passionate about optimizing population metabolic health, reversing and preventing diabetes and obesity. And his partner is a GP, so I think you'll agree he's well placed to know the challenges faced by GPs and health professionals in life. So, Thank you very much, Graham. I'm going to pass over to you. Okay, can you see that okay? Yeah, that's coming through great. Um, we can see that, Graham. And you can hear me okay? Yeah, thanks. You just need to put it on slideshow mode because... Uh, I think the trouble is then I can't see... Hold on. Right, how's that? That's perfect. Okay, so if you think how health systems are judged, we tend to judge system, health systems by how long people live and not how good, how well people live. And um, as Camilla said, I became very senior in my profession. We won pretty much every pharmacy award. I had a very senior uh, role in the profession and ultimately ended up in frustration thinking I'm only ever speeding more, spooning more tablets into people and the people are only ever getting sicker. And so it made me re-explore the fundamental science. And um, both these people are 82 years old. The lady on the left is quite a well-known American grandma um, and she didn't 
basically start getting fit until their mid-60s, which shows it's never too late. And the guy in the right is the position that we all dread, you know, in the residential home, dribbling into his suit, but I guarantee you someone's still spooning some statins into him. And the question is, what's the point? So for me, it's all about bringing not just uh, lifespan, which is the guy on the right, it's health span, which is the beautiful looking woman on the left. Now, when I give these presentations, I always start with a cognitive dissonance warning because so much of what we think we know about diet, health um, and well-being is based on really poor quality studies. And when I'm talking about poor quality studies, I'm talking about Framingham, uh, which we all know and love. I'm talking about the 4S studies. I'm talking about um, Ansel Keys. And I've illustrated here the relationship between per capita cheese consumption and the number of people who died by becoming tangled in their bedsheets. And as you can say, see, it correlates beautifully, but none of us would probably imagine that one is the cause of the other. And so much of nutrition and food research is based on that. But I thought we should start with a word from our, our sponsor, uh, Boris. And interestingly, Boris has just recently discovered low carb. But um, we all know that there's going to be an obesity strategy and there's going to be the banning of junk food. And of course, I know GPs would be absolutely delighted to know that you're going to be encouraged to prescribe bike rides, uh, that we'll see some improvements in the NHS uh, diabetes prevention programme. Now, I've got issues with that programme. First of all, its capacity, even if it was 100% successful, its total capacity outweighs the rate at which people are becoming more diabetic. And type 2 diabetes rates are doubling every 10 years. And it's limited in scope. And it's all based on the old paradigm of eat less, move more, uh, low fat, high sugar. And of course, GP is going to be encouraged to prescribe exercise and other social activities. Um, social prescribing, of course, is something I'm very uh, supportive of, but I guess most GPs are fairly cynical about a lot of this. You just feel like you're being dumped on again. Um, this simply is a slide from Public Health England. And the bottom line is it illustrates that we're becoming fatter and more obese and, of course, with it more, more diabetic. And of course, we know that in terms of COVID outcomes, the, other than age, um, your two worst predictors are being overweight and diabetic. And here we are. Um, we're not quite the worst in the world. Our, our American cousins are still ahead of us. But the point is we're rapidly catching up with them in terms of our diabetes rates. Now, in the US, I think 60 plus percent of calories come from ultra processed food and we're about 5% behind them. Which brings me to the next issue with Boris's obesity strategy, eat out, eat out to help out. Now, this is um, the CGM monitoring from one of my staff, fit, slim, young, 20 year old girl. And as you can see on the left hand side of the slide, um, we got her blood uh, glucose fairly well controlled. And then she went for a McDonald's and oh, my God, look at the spike. Right. This is a single McDonald's in a fit, slim, young person. And yet we're, and yet we're being encouraged to eat out and help out as well as this obesity strategy. And we need to make some pretty um, important decisions. Now, we all know, um, health, we health professionals, that we're you know, overwhelmed by a sea of cardiometabolic disease. And how many of us really think too much about it? We're born into this milieu of escalating cardiometabolic disease and it just gets worse and worse. What I was never told as a health professional and what I get, guess you were never told as a health professional um, was that cancer, dementia, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease are brand new diseases. 
And if you go back 120 years, they simply didn't exist. And of course, we all told, yeah, you know, you know that, Graham, because everyone died when they were too young, so that's why they didn't develop them. That's wrong too. That's another myth. So the example I always give is, if you had a woman and she had two children, one died in childbirth and the other one lived till 80, average life expectancy was 40. Doesn't deny the fact that one lived to 80. And actually disguised in the figures was an awful lot of people who did live to, to a healthy, ripe old age and didn't by and large suffer the same diseases that we suffer from today. And these diseases have come on so rapidly that it's absolutely apparent that they cannot be genetic. It must be lifestyle. And simultaneously with all the growth in non-communicable diseases, we see the tracking of autoimmune diseases uh, as well. And any of you who've been in practice like I have for a period of time will have seen a massive escalation in all these things tracking together. And yet within the NHS, we tend to treat them as isolated. Uh, uh, we treat them symptomatically. And the other problem I think health professionals have is that we basically have no instruction in nutrition, in sleep and in exercise. So we almost automatically reach for the tablets. Now a diet high in sugar and carbs will raise your blood sugar. And, if you, and the response to that will be an insulin spike. Everyone knows that. I don't think we know enough about the relationship between insulin and glucagon because they have opposite effects. And I don't think we learn enough about energy storage. And I haven't got time to go into a lot of detail here, but essentially, um, if your insulin is high, you will be in a position of storing energy rather than burning energy. And that's a natural adaptation for feast and famine. Trouble is that we always have feast and we never have famine. And that will force your body into storing the energy and it will make you hungrier. Because if you, uh, Robert Lustig tells this rather well, that if you get somebody with a perfect uh, energy balance, so let's assume that they burn 200 calories and they consume 200 calories on average, that's fine. And if, let's imagine in the middle of the night you inject them with some insulin and they now store 500 of those calories. That means they've only got 1500 calories available to burn and they'll eat another 500 calories. And that's kind of where we are. The other problem that we have is if you think back from the hunter-gatherer perspective, it's believed that they were probably in ketosis, fat burning mode 70% the of the time. Most of us never go into fat burning mode and our bodies lose the ability to do it. So we've got all this stored fat that could run our system for months, maybe years, and yet we could, but we're permanently hungry. And that was my story. I got fatter and fatter and hungry and hungry at the same time. And of course, in the end, the um, fat stores become full, the glycogen stores, which are your short-term uh, energy storage, become full, the adipose tissue starts to become leaky and inflamed, you become insulin resistant, and then what happens at the very end, and this of course is a, a 20 or 30 year journey for most people, the evidence is in the end, because the fat's got nowhere left to go and you're producing more and more fat as a result of the more and more sugar you're dipping into your system and your insulin is continually spiking and you become more and more insulin resistant. It's not that your insulin levels drop, it's the fact that your fat cells become so full that in the end the fat that the liver is producing backs up in the liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, backs up in the pancreas and the pancreas becomes full of fat too. The fatty milieu of the pancreas, the latest evidence shows, which causes the, uh, the beta cells which produce the insulin to revert to alpha cells which produce glucagon. 
Now, if you think back to what I said at the start, that it's about this balance between insulin and glucagon, flip them over and you become diabetic. And when I'm talking to sort of lay members of the public, I say, just imagine you've got a tug of war and you've got 10 beefy men on that side and 10 beefy men on that side. Move one man from that side to the other side and all of a sudden everything goes in the opposite direction. It would be OK if all of this was just the simple cause of diabetes, but of course it's not. We know as health professionals that we see um, a link between uh, this kind of tummy shape and not just cardiovascular disease and lipid disease and hypertension and diabetes and dementia and cancer. The trouble is that what we do is we treat them individually and symptomatically. What we don't do, do is pro look properly at root causes. The consequences of insulin resistance I've illustrated here, and these are just an example. And what astonishes me, uh, I still astonished by it, I'll take a client who's maybe first thought is I want to lose weight or I want to get pregnant um, and, and everything improves their weight improves their mood improves their infl inflammatory markers improves you know their psoriasis resolves um, we had one guy who was a hospital doctor and he was basically slim but had a bit of a tummy and he approached me could I help him with his tinnitus he had such severe tinnitus that it was waking him up in the middle of the night. He had a breakdown and had to give up work. And I said, well, there's some limited uh, evidence about a relationship within uh, hyperinsulinemia and tinnitus. Let's try it. We put the CGM on him and yes, he was having sugar spikes. We resolved those. And in two to three weeks, he had a 90% resolution of his tinnitus. Now, I know that's N equals one. I'm also a scientist, but it just shows you how profound these interventions can be. And so we all know about the sugar and the, the big sugar spike and we avoid those but all, almost all the health professionals I know think that it's fine to eat complex carbs um, starches and what we've all done is we've forgotten our basic O-level chemistry which is starch molecules are simply glucose molecules stuck together with an oxygen and when you metabolize them guess what they turn to sugar so your um, typical British breakfast 30 grams of cornflakes almost 10 spoonfuls of sugar trouble is this no one eats 30 grams of cornflakes. People eat 60 or 90 grams of uh, cornflakes and they start their day with 30 spoonfuls of sugar. And uh, David Unwin is talking after me and these are his original uh, infographics and they're absolutely brilliant. When I show these to patients, you can see the lights coming on. Um, we've illustrated here, you know, five spoonfuls of sugar per slice of whole grain barley, uh, boiled potatoes with your salad. Um, and I don't know about you, but I love an Indian takeaway with basmati rice. And so most of us are spending our lives having sugar for breakfast, sugar for lunch, sugar for snacks. Um, and that explains it all. Now look at broccoli. Whoever got addicted to broccoli? And also look at eggs. Most health professionals I speak to are still frightened of eggs because of cholesterol. And that's a whole other myth. Actually, the point about eggs is it's all a perfectly balanced nutritional supplement. Uh, it's devoid of carb and it's got a, a beautiful balance um, of, of fat and protein and nutrients. And I, I regard that as a staple and I get lots of my clients on that. And this is also one of David's slides. Illustrates here that somebody's had a bowl of porridge for breakfast on one day and an omelette the next. And in each case, their starting uh, blood glucose was fairly reasonable, well controlled. Porridge has taken them straight into the diabetic range. The omelette had almost no effect. But looking beyond the simple sugar calculus, let's look at nutrition and hunger. 
there's almost no nutrition in that porridge. It's just a ton of sugar and not much uh, value. And if you're plowing the fields, maybe you need the sugar, but most of us are probably plowing our computer screens and our keyboards. We don't use those calories. Whereas the omelette, um, lots of lovely nutrition and you feel hung you feel full for the rest of the day. Now, to give you an idea, most of the time, most days, I'm kind of oh, mad during the week, one meal a day. Weekends, we generally eat two meals and this first meal will almost invariably be an egg-based something. And it just keeps me full till the evening. Now, 40, 50 years ago, this is how cigarettes were, were promoted. Smoke the brand your doctor smokes and the food industry has is now doing exactly the same thing, but it's replaced that the whole uh, the same marketing images that used to be there for cigarettes. We now see with uh, processed foods. And I just want to tell the slight quickly the story of, of fats and Crisco. Now, um, Ansel Keys of uh, the heart diet hypothesis fame was also on the board of Procter and Gamble. And Procter and Gamble bought Crisco, uh, and the Crisco is um, a processed seed oil. They call them vegetable oils to make them seem benign. They're nothing but benign. They're actually these uh, oils are produced in factories that look like oil refineries. And I'll show you later what the processing is. And Procter and Gamble thought they'd sell this oil, they'd modify it and sell it as soap, and it didn't succeed. So then they decided to create so-called heart healthy, low cholesterol oil and feed it to human beings. Now these oils were actually, this oil was originally made by a German chemist and it was designed specifically to be the oil for the engine of a German diesel submarine back in the 20s and 30s. And of course there weren't very many of those, it wasn't really a business. So Procter and Gamble did two things. Um, they, they further refined and hydrogenated and chlorinated and remanufactured it so it looked like liquid engineering. And then they got Ansel Keys to talk, who was on the board of the American Heart Association, to um, offer the uh, AHA a massive bung to endorse heart healthy seed oils. And the rest, as they say, is history. And I think in the low carb community, we tend to obsess about sugar. Um, and important as it is, we ignore the uh, effects of these seed oils. Now, these polyunsaturated oils, if you, again you think back to your O level chemistry, polyunsaturated so there are multiple double links between carbon atoms and that makes these saturated uh, polyunsaturated fats liquid at room temperature which is health helpful but it also makes them fundamentally uh, chemically unstable and subject to oxidation and much as they've all been talked about cholesterol actually what causes all the heart disease isn't the cholesterol it's the cholesterol ta uh, transport mechanisms it's the lipoproteins and what these seed oils do is two things. One is they oxidize and damage the lipo proteins, not a good thing to have in your cardiovascular system. They're also metabolic poisons. They literally poison your cell at the level of the mitochondria, uh, the battery of the cell. And moreover, um, they are signaling molecules. So the correct ratio in our diet, healthy diet, would be roughly one to one omega-3 to omega-6 fats. In Western societies, we've got sometimes 12, 15 or even 20 to 1 in favour of omega-6. So we've got the omega-6, omega-3 balance completely wrong. Omega-6 fats are signalling molecules. And one of the things they do is they signal to fat cells to become insulin resistant. And when, that's the last thing we need right now.
Now, I just want to quickly talk about AMD as an illustration. Um, the, it's quite interesting. The ophthalmoscope has been around 150 years. So it means that people have been able to look into the back of the eye for all of that time at a very high quality. And if you go back to the early days of the ophthalmoscope, there was absolutely zero, and I do mean zero reports worldwide of, of so-called age-related macular degeneration. And it, the AMD wasn't ever reported until about 100 years ago. And you have to say to yourself, well, what happened 100 years ago? Well, not, it's not what happened 100 years ago, it's what happened 30 or 40 years before that, which is the introduction to the human diet of these seed oils. And the parallel between what goes on with the um, vascularization um, of this uh, Brooks membrane as the whole cardio, as the uh, rich blood supply to the eye gets damaged as a result of the seed oils beautifully mirrors what happens in the cardiovascular system. So yes, we didn't have all the, back 120 years ago, we didn't have all the fancy technology we have to diagnose. We didn't have CT angiograms and CAC scores, but they were able to actually absorb uh, um, observed the back of the eye 120 years ago and the processes are stri strikingly the same that as the eye becomes deprived as the vascular system degenerates and as the eye becomes deprived of oxygen it recruits uh, increasing amounts um, uh, of, of veins and uh, towards the back of the eye and that is the process that leads to AMD and it's striking the resemblance between that and what happens in cardiovascular disease as a result of hyperinsulinemia. Um, so this is an illustration. So you can see these parallels now between seed oils in the diet um, and uh, the, the increase in sugar in the diet and all these processes going stepwise. And ultimately what happens is the lining of the endothelium of the cardiovascular system gets damaged. Uh, you then get the plaque and the rest as we know is, is history. Now, just a little bit more on Ansel Keys. He studied 22 countries. He ignored the majority. He drew his graph and then he almost basically plotted the six remaining countries. And you can see on the left hand side of the screen the correlation between cardiovascular death um, and fat. If you look at his original studies and you actually you plot it, there's not only a no correlation, there's a negative correlation. And actually, the more saturated fat in the diet, the less heart disease. And if you look at traditional cultures um, from a variety of different environments across the world who have lots of very high levels of saturated fat in their diet, they've got fantastic dentition, fantastic cardiovascular health, and they look, they look wonderful. And let's not forget how important saturated fat is. It's in our heart, it's, in our, it's, it's the basis of our hormones, every cell requires it. And cholesterol is so important that if you, that almost every cell can manufacture its own cholesterol and yet we've been convinced by the um, statin industry that the less cholesterol the better and we've been convinced by the food industry to eat this highly processed food. Now I think this slide is worth dwelling on. Look where the ants are. The ants know what to eat, it's just the human beings that don't. And this is just a, a schematic of what goes on with the manufacture of these so-called heart healthy seed or vegetable oils. And this is why the entire thing is driven by the food industry. I think 10 com companies basically dominate the world's supply 
And those 10 companies, there was a fantastic article in the BMJ recently about how Coke had poisoned health research um, and invested in this huge network of basically lie telling and convinced all health professionals that, that black is white. And these just illustrate the good facts, the traditional facts. So essentially, the traditional facts that are uh, appropriate for Homo sapiens after two million years of evolution, the things that, we, that the hunter-gatherer would have eaten, why do we think after two million years of evolution we can suddenly get it right when two million years of evolution got it wrong? And we can see the consequences. So, you know, all my Asian clients now, I have to convince them not to eat these pseudos, go back and eat, you know, the, the traditional ghee. Um, it's a fantastic uh, way to cook and it's also very heat resistant. And of course, ghee uh, and butter based on uh, grass fed beef has got the A, D, E and K fat soluble vitamins that we're so short of. And the story here is about the smoke point. So the higher the smoke point, the less oxidation you get, the lower the smoke, smoke point, the more oxidation you get. And these so-called heart healthy oils are anything but. Which brings me to the Eat Well Guide, which I spent 30 of my 35 years in practice encouraging people to use. Um, the exact opposite of healthy. Um, it's full of carbs, full of processed food, uh, low in nutritional density, and it's exactly the opposite of healthy. And yet that's what we're encouraged still to believe to, to use to educate our patients. Now, if you look into the people that write this guide for Public Health England on behalf of the NHS, the conflict of interests is unbelievable. In any other work of life, all these individuals on this committee would have to declare their interests, but they don't. And I would look at that with suspicion. And if you're interested in looking a bit more in this area, just look at one of Zoe Harcum's uh, YouTubes on the Eat Well Guide and you will never go back. So what should we be eat and when to eat? So I want to dwell briefly on time restricted feeding. We have to consider what we eat. So it's the balance between carbs, fats and proteins. And the, the body needs protein, the body needs fat. Carbs are optional, despite what you may have been led to believe. If, if you eat no sugar and no carbs whatsoever, you will not, your, your um, blood glucose will not be zero. And that's because the body, when it uh, metabolizes the fat that you've got stored, the triglyceride, that glycerol backbone is released back to the liver, process called gluconeogenesis, and, and sufficient glucose is, is uh, produced to keep you going. So you will never have die of a profound hypo. And in fact, there was an uh, experiment recently by a group of uh, six or seven of our colleagues, and they fasted for five days and they ran 100 miles, 20 miles a day, and they ran the whole thing fasted. Two of them were type one diabetics. Guess what? Nobody died. Nobody went to, into ketoacidosis and um, zero, five, 100 if you're interested in that. So macros, but I think we obsess about the macros at the expense of micros, because it's the micronutrients that really give us the nutrition. And I tend to focus a great deal on, on micronutrients, eat the rainbow, making sure that you've got a, a good balance of uh, micronutrients and plenty of fiber to nourish your microbiome. Also, it's about when you eat. 
So what I tend to do with clients, they might start off with a kind of breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, and they're basically eating almost all their waking hours. What I first do is I get them off the carbs and the processed oils and they're less hungry. Then I get them to consolidate their meals into three distinct periods. So they're not snacking between meals, despite what the food industry would have us believe. And then the next thing I do is I get them to have a period when they're a 12 hour period between the evening meal one day and breakfast the next. So now they're eating during a time restricted window um, and not eating during a time restricted window. So the 12 hours during which they eat three meals and 12 hours during which they eat nothing. Then we start to skip meals and we start to bring them into a sort of 16 8 scenario where they're eating in an eight hour window and not eating for a 16 hour window. And it's surprising how easy that becomes. And then as we move them forward, we get them down to one meal a day in many cases. And then in some cases we go on to fasting. And let's be clear about my definition of fasting. More eating for 20, not eating for 24 hours or more is what I regard as fasting. Anything less than that is time restricted feeding and they're not the same in terms of the cardiometabolic effect. And not there isn't sufficient time to go into detail on this today, but there are absolutely profound benefits in longer periods of fasts. If you think about our hunter-gatherer forebears, what's the likelihood that they'd have been, you know, eating McDonald's for breakfast, um, pizza and all that? Of course, they'd have been through periods of feast and periods of famine. And during the, a prolonged fast, the body switches on all sorts of healthy processes, including uh, autophagy and ap apoptosis, hunting out the bad cells, tracking them down, breaking them down and recycling them as a, as a way to um, preserve um, all the nutrients and all the uh, value that's there. But when you're eating all the time, those genes are never switched on. So if you're interested in, in all this, that's a discussion for another day. But this principle of hormesis or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And there are a variety of ways to encourage that healthy longevity, fasting, high intensity exercise and extremes of heat and cold are just examples of that. And so just briefly about our service, essentially what we do is we take the standard GP biometric data. Um, we see what uh, the client wants. We look at uh, exercise, nutrition, stress, supplements, ongoing medication, and obviously the standard panel of biometric tests. And I have to say some GPs are really good at this and some GPs are very, very inconsistent in which tests they order and what they look at. And so I had a client recently where she, she'd had a beautiful uh, lipid profile, but hi high levels of cholesterol. And her GP said, you've got too much cholesterol, change your diet. Three months later, um, when I saw her, she had less cholesterol and her lipid profile had reversed. So instead of having lots of healthy HDL um, and low levels of trigs, although her total cholesterol was lower, she'd reversed her ratio. So now she had a ton of trigs and low HDL. She'd gone from a really healthy lipid profile to a really unhealthy one based on the GP's advice, which was not thinking properly about all of those uh, different parameters. So we can usually, what's really impressive is how rapidly blood pressure comes down. But all these problems tend to track together and we see these fantastic results. 
and it has been a revolution for me. It's why I've walked away. I had 10 pharmacies. I've sold the majority of them now uh, because it's just as a health professional is so much more satisfying. And I, I've got a similar tale. And I think when David speaks, he'll talk about that. But it's given me a whole new leaf of, leaf, lease of life as a health professional. One final thought. It's not just the fat people who are sick. Actually, there are more normal weight people who are sick than fat. So although the fat people are a greater percentage of them are sick, plenty of slim people get sick too. It's not about your weight. Weight is kind of a bystander. It's not a very good biomarker. The question is whether you've got insulin resistance and fatty liver and people like me, thin outside, fat inside. And I think we've forgotten this, that uh, as Hippocrates said, our food should be our medicine and our medicine should be our food. Now, I know that was a very quick whiz through uh, and I was criticised the last time I presented for not presenting all the evidence. I'm happy to engage on the basis of the evidence. There just hasn't been time in this quick whiz through and I want to leave time for questions. So I will stop the share. And Wonderful. Thank you so much, Graham. I never tire of listening to you. You sort of always have a different slant and a really interesting sort of um, way of portraying your information. I particularly like the being caught up in the bedsheets and um, the analogy there. So thank you so much. If anyone has any questions, please put them in the Q&A box and we will go through them all in time. Um, Graham, I wondered if you just wanted to explain what a CGM is, a continuous glucose monitor, because I think in normal realms of GP don't use that or aren't particularly familiar with it and it's something that is becoming more and more used by all the I know your friend yeah I've got one um, we're all probably familiar with uh, Libre Freestyle this is the the sensor that comes with it um, so it's fascinating actually um, the it's a, a device the size of a 10 pence piece that goes on your arm with a tiny hair-like probe that just goes below the surface of the skin. So it's not actually technically reading your blood glucose, it's reading the interstitial fluid. And there's a five to 10 minute delay between the blood glucose reading and the reading there, which is why you can't use it to drive an insulin pump. But from a directional point of view, it's fantastically uh, informative. Um, as you know, they're prescribable on the NHS for type one, um, a lot of us now see it as, as a prevention and not just for type two, but for the entirety of metabolic syndrome. So much is driven by the sugars that it's the most amazing tool. But you do need someone to help you interpret it. So it's like anything. I, when I'm giving talks, I always say, you know, cheap blood pressure monitors have been around for 20 years. And yet in the last 20 years, everyone's got more hypertensive. Fitbit have delivered 100 million devices in the last 10 years. And yet no one would say that they've made us healthier and fitter everything's getting worse so i think the key here is the use of technology but you need a guide thank you the um i think it is really interesting because i think you can have a good hba1c yet use an awful lot of insulin for example and eat an awful lot of carbohydrates and we don't in practice measure insulin and insulin resistance and that's an area that I don't think is well understood. And it's the insulin resistance that drives the inflammatory process and a lot of the disease processes. I'm on a mission to empower GPs to order a Homer IR test or some form of insulin resistance. And the point is this, 
if your blood sugar is here and your insulin is here, that's fantastic. But if your blood sugar is down there and your insulins are sort of 20 atmospheres of insulin holding it at bay, you've got metabolic syndrome. And it's not, and it, that can go on for 20 or 30 years until the type two diabetes overwhelms the ability to, to you know, to, to navigate that relations between insulin and glucagon have opposite effects. I think HbA1c is a terrible test because you can, and, until you really become quite nearly diabetic, your blood sugar is fantastic. In fact, it looks exquisite. And I've had high, lots of hyperinsulinemic clients and they can eat an entire pizza and it, their blood glucose is completely unperturbed. So they go to their GP, HbA1c is fantastic. Yeah, you're a bit posh, but don't worry about it. No one's looking at the HbA, at what's driving that. No one's looking at the insulin and insulin resistance and people are not forensically looking at okay so what are the lfts show ferritin's a bit high ggt's not quite where it should be um let's have a look at not just today's lipid profile but how has it been progressing oh yeah so we can see hdl's gradually coming down triggers are gradually going up all these things are pointing towards future problems but they get ignored until your hba1c's at the level that nhs england tells us intervene Absolutely. And I think there is a difficulty because we as GPs haven't traditionally been educated well enough in this area. And we need to understand the minutiae in the first place in order to properly inform patients. And that's why these sort of events are so interesting, um, especially with the overwhelming evidence that's coming through. So someone has asked about intermittent fasting, which and how does that affect insulin resistance? So it's, I think there are kind of various tools in the toolbox in all of this, right? What you eat, when you eat, and how you eat. I certainly wouldn't start any of my clients intermittent fasting because a lot of them have a profound hypo, they'll feel dreadful and that's the end of it. So the first thing to do, and I don't worry about their weight either, the first thing I do is I get their macros right so they're not hungry. Once they, uh, what I find then is because they're less hungry, they start to intermittent fast naturally, right? Because they're simply not as hungry. They don't need, they're not having a hypo and a hyper and they're like, their sugar isn't doing this all day and their energy isn't doing all this today. And that almost happens by itself. And weight tends to come down automatically because when your insulin is lowered, because you're not eating things that raise your insulin, you're not in energy storage mode all the time. And then, yes, we do move forward. So absolutely, I think there's a fantastic role for intermittent fasting, but I build it up gradually. But as I say, I, we do no calorie counting for 99% of my clients, and we certainly don't start with that. But over time, my more sort of, the clients have been with me for a longer period of time, we take the intermittent fasting into three and sometimes five day fast to get those other benefits. So there's a continuum of benefit but you've got to understand the science and you've got to go stepwise. Thank you. Han Hannah Yates said you did a quick whiz through on the macro and the micronutrients. Yeah. Just expand on that a bit, please. Sure. So if you go back to the so-called uh, uh, Eat Well Guide or Healthy Plate that the NHS England would have us use, um, I think you'll find 60 or 70% of energy is coming from carbs. And if you look at, um, you know, the, what was it, the NHS shakes, very high in carbs, they admittedly low in calories. You're kind of starving yourself into submission. Well, 
since as I said, carbs are, I love carbs. I've never yet come across a carb I don't enjoy. The point is the human body doesn't need carbs. And will, but if there are carbs that we're taking in, the body will preferentially burn the carbs, not the fat. You can't burn carbs and fat at the same time. So if you've got a diet that's carb dominant in terms of calories, you're in permanent sugar burning mode because that's how the body controls its blood sugar. So that will raise your insulin and make you hungrier and, and also drives all this, drives metabolic syndrome in many ways. Does that mean I'm no carb? No. Um, does it mean I'm completely anti-carb in some kind of cult? No. So it's, it's, it's about for the individual refining the relationship between those macros. So generally we bring carbs down and we bring fats up because fats don't spike insulin. And then people feel much more satiated. But you have to be quite forensic about the balance between carbs and protein and fat to get it right for an individual. So for example, I found with my menopausal ladies, weight loss is so difficult for them and we have to radically reduce both carbs and fat and uprate protein. So you've got to look at it very individually. I call it precision nutrition. There is no one size fits all approach. I can say just like smoking is healthy for no one, high carb diet is healthy for no one, hyper processed food in the diet is healthy for no one, everything else is up for grabs. Absolutely. And I think it is um, very important to sort of um, say that we're not advocating everyone goes no carb or sort of very low carb. Yeah. It's about a balance and getting what's right and sustainable for that patient. Yeah. It's important for them not to think they're on a diet, isn't it? Because you want something that is a sort of way of eating. Calories and I don't use the word diet. And I always say to people at the start, the weird, just the word diet. And I feel miserable and hungry just saying that word. So it's, exactly. I've tried to ban it from my lexicon. And, and, and absolutely. And it's also about managing families. So it's about sort of educating the whole family and having a, a sort of enjoyable food environment that everyone can enjoy. In fact, most of my clients end up probably eating more calories if you were to count it and probably eat a much wider variety. Because when I start to explain that, try and eat, you know, 40 different plants a week, I'm not plant-based at all, but I certainly believe that a plant slant diet is healthy. And they get people to eat the rainbows. They're eating a panoply of different foods and tastes and textures. Um, actually, for most of my clients, they're not bored because they're eating a wider variety of interesting stuff. They're able to eat stuff that they thought was unhealthy that replaces the stuff that they was told was just healthy, but actually wasn't. So most of my clients really enjoy it. And, and, and that's, I think, this the the message that we're getting from all these healthcare providers that are, that are interested in this area so we've got lots more questions to get through someone has asked about young children and younger people who are obese can we give them the same information um, important area it is well okay so my starting point is that um the baby in utero is in ketosis breastfed babies are probably in ketosis and everything that I'm saying is about in uprating micronutrients and the quality. And I say to my clients, you're probably with me, you'll eat a lot less food and a lot less often. Invest the savings from the food that you're not eating and eating a higher quality of food. And um, as you said, Karen, my partner's a GP, she sees lots of depressed teenagers. 
And when she asked them what they're eating, she said they're just eating a white card diet. They've got no nutrition in their diet and they feel dreadful. And it was certainly how I used to be. I can see no medical reason. I mean, if you just think we've been bamboozled in the last hundred years by the food industry to radically change what we eat. Most of the crops have been genetically modified. How can it be less than healthy? Why do we need a clinical trial to say to human beings, eat the food that Homo sapiens ate uh, healthily and safely for almost two million years? But now we say we need a clinical trial to prove it. Did we need a clinical trial to radically change the diet with no clinical trial in the first place? And I think I think you're right. I think the sort of advice has gone sort of awry. And a lot of it is based on sort of studies of old, like the Ansel Key studies that yeah. it's been sort of now uncovered that it's been flawed um, because it's only used a few of these studies to, um, to, to take the sort of um, information from. It's interesting if you actually go to Framingham, as I've done, and read the original text, what they actually say is, We've reached a conclusion unsupported by our studies, but we're going to reach that conclusion anyway. They admitted it in their text. Mm. And, I, and, and I think we need to unlearn really everything we've been told, sort of everything about the eat well plate, everything that we've been told over years and years and years of advice. And it's only just coming to light now of the harms and how carbohydrates trigger hunger and insulin and the inflammatory pro process of insulin. And I think that's quite a sort of way you know it's quite a journey that everyone needs to go through and certainly with children I think it's very important to teach children from an early age because they're in a society where the supermarket there's cheap mega bags of crisps they live off bagels and carbohydrates yeah. it's addictive and it is a sort of positive sort of cycle that you need to actively change I couldn't agree more it's just exactly what the cigarette industry did 40 50 years ago it's the same playbook and my firm belief is that we we should for those families that genuinely can't i mean it's all right for us nice middle class people to afford organic avocados right mm. we know that a lot of our patients are never going to be able to do that why don't okay. we subsidize the healthy food for those patients now and teach them about nutrition and cooking rather than pick up the tab 40 50 years later times 10 in the nhs the money's there in the system in my view it's just being spent in the wrong way Thank you. And, and what about Weight Watchers? What do you think about the advice that they're giving? Um, they've become less carboniferous, haven't they? It's getting better. I know that they're one of the few that have longer term data. I'm still not convinced, right? Because, you know, all of this stuff, weighing and calorie counting, it's still there, isn't it? My belief is eat real food. That's what we were designed by uh, two million years of evolution to do and then go from there. And that's well, I think, why I hate these Nestle shakes that Michael Mosley suddenly become so keen on. Same reason, you know, we're getting food and abstracting it and becoming, turning it into a medicine. So instead of medicine becoming the food, the food's turned into a medicine. Well, who would do that? And I think it's very difficult for patients to navigate because they're getting information and bombarded from all different angles and they're getting information from us about one thing. They're being sent to Weight Watchers and Slimming World and being told low fats calorie count. They're being told to have these shakes diets that have, you know, a called chocolate chip and caramel sundae and expected to eat three of those a day with sort of reduced calories. So they're getting bombarded and it's really how do we get a consistent message across? I, I mean, I, to me, it's exactly like smoking. 
Um, the parallels are incredibly close and we should take the same approach. The, um, and, and Katie Miller has also asked, what's the best book or app recommended to your patients? And I think as this sort of um, presentation sort of um, goes through, we will give you some links. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if you're interested, if you join my Facebook group, Wellness with Prolongevity, I actually did a Facebook live event um, a couple of weeks ago and I, and I reviewed five of my favourite books and I explained how all these books are coming from very different positions. It's about triangulating the combination. So that's, you have a look at my website and I've gone through some and then people are very welcome to DM me or whatever, contact me. Thank you. And, and can you comment on the re recent controversy on olive oil? I'm not aware of that, but... Is this about, um, if you can just check, is this about adulteration or what's the controversy? So maybe if um, Ken Chu, if you just want to type in what the controversy is and we'll come back to you. Um, I'm, while we're waiting, I'm going to assume that the controversy has got to be based on the quality. And that's absolutely true. So much olive oil is adulterated and so many things that say made with pure organic olive oil. Yes, there's some pure organic olive oil in there together with a lot of SH1T. So um, what I always do is I make sure that I know the source of the olive oil and it's genuine. Um, my view about olive oil is don't get it too hot, but other than that, it's wonderful. Thank you. And um, Mary asked about the measuring insulin. I know there is a private test. It's not available on the NHS. I don't know if you've got any more information if people want to access. Sure. Just Google HOMA, H HOMA homeostatic, homeostatic model of insulin resistance, HOMA IR, or Google craft test. Now, Kraft, Dr. Kraft died recently, but he, um, there's a fantastic video of Dr. Kraft with Ivor Cummins. And what Kraft was able to show, oh, 30, 40, maybe more years ago, was that so-called essential hypertension isn't, isn't essential at all. There's nothing essential about hypertension. Um, he, he was able to show that in 90 plus percent of cases, hypertensives were hyperinsulinemic. And what he did was basically did an OGTT, so the standard 75 gram dose of glucose with the characteristic curve, but he tracked the insulin. So he was now looking at not just the, the sugar, but the relationship between insulin and sugar. And forensically, he was able to show different propensity towards the journey towards metabolic syndrome type 2 diabetes as he went. Um, and his book is, I haven't read it yet, it's on my to read list. So Homer IR or a, an equivalent medal, just the kind of ones that GPs are allowed to order, resting a sort of fasting blood glucose tells you nothing about what's going on the rest of the time, right? Um, and you've got no idea what's going on with insulin. It's not even that much of an expensive test. And I sent my, bro my brother-in-law was profoundly hypertensive. He lives in Belgium. I sent him to the GP. They referred him to a cardiologist because he was, you know, about to go pop his blood. The first thing that the cardiologist did was a Homer IR test. Now, almost no cardiologists do that here. Yeah, yeah. So um, someone has asked also, going back to fats and what is safe to use in cooking, what do you recommend in browning mince, stir frying, veg, etc.? Yeah. So um, if you think about this, the standard beef tallow, so any of the animal fats are absolutely fine. Um, butter or ghee, absolutely fine. Avocado oil is pretty good, despite what you may have been told, coconut oil is, is, is fantastic. 
And interestingly, the best of the bad bunch, palm oil. There are other issues around palm oil, around the environment, but actually it's okay. But I would always err on, the, on towards the animal fats or the dairy fats, because it's not just about the fats, it's about the micronutrient content. Okay. And can you touch on a keto diet? Because a lot of people are using the keto diet um, about the sort of relative benefits of that and where what the place for a keto diet is. Yeah, so I'm not in the keto club. Um, and I think it's becoming a bit of, you know, of a cult thing and I resist cults. But increasingly the evidence seems to be that you know, human beings can basically burn two fuels, right? They can burn sugar or they can burn fat. They can't burn both. And you're, if you give, if the sugar's there, you'll burn the sugar. Historically, the belief is that hunter-gatherers were in ketosis 70% of the time. So it's a bit like um, if you put petrol in your diesel engine, it ain't going to run very well. And that's what we're doing with our bodies most of the time. I'm, th there's also other sorts of interesting things about the keto diet. So we're talking about very low carb and that's why it becomes hard to sustain. And for an individual, it will vary. But we're certainly talking about less than 50 grams of carb a day and in some cases less than 20 or 30. So you have to be really, really forensic about avoiding the carbs. Now you're burning fat. And there's a fascinating study recently looking at dementia. And they looked at dementia patients who are highly insulin resistant. And the belief about the dementia is changing rapidly and radically, which is as the brain becomes insulin resistant, it can't absorb the sugar and therefore it becomes deprived of energy and the cells start to die. And they looked at these patients who are highly, who had early stage dementia and were highly insulin resistant, and they radio labeled the sugar and they showed that the sugar couldn't enter the cell. They then put them onto a keto diet and they radio labeled the ketones in their bloodstream and they found, guess what? The brain was very happily absorbing the fat, that it could, whereas it couldn't absorb the sugar. So I think the evidence, the case for keto, in fact, Gary Taubes just, I haven't read it yet, but Gary Taubes just wrote this book called The Case for Keto. You'll find Gary, plenty of uh, YouTubes by Gary Taubes. And I think increasingly that is the way things are going to go for a lot, not for everyone, but for a lot of people. There's also another interesting thing about keto, which I probably should just talk about briefly if I've got time, which is this thing called mitochondrial uncoupling. All of us are struggling, aren't we? Because our energy, you know, we're taking in more energy than we're burning, basic principle. When you're in sugar burning mode, carb burning mode, you're incredibly efficient. You burn the absolute minimum of energy you need to run the system. What Ben Bickman's been able to show, and his book is also um, excellent, it's not just about this relation, this what he calls the relationship between insulin and glucagon. And saying I think glucagon is is ignored. Is also that when you go into ketosis, you get mitochondrial uncoupling, and all of a sudden you use energy much less efficiently. So now you're warmer and you're burning more energy. You're kind of wasting some because you can. When in an environment in which we're tr always trying to be, you know, find ways to burn more energy and be slimmer. That's fantastic. So all these things are starting to come together around ketosis that are quite compelling. Thank you. And um, and I, I, I didn't know if that led on to talking about being fat adapted. Um, yes. because if you are in ketosis, you need to be fat adapted. Otherwise, you get hangry, as my husband well knows. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my aim for my clients is for them to be cardiometabolically flexible. 
In other words, they're fine burning sugar and they're fine burning fat. And I think that's how we were designed to be. I also think we're designed to mainly burn fat, not sugar. If your sugar is high, your insulin will be high. And if you keep topping up your sugar, you'll always be running on insulin. And in the end, you lose that ability to burn the fat that you've got stored. And it's a bit, when I'm talking to lay people, I say like you've done your weekly shop and you put the food you're gonna eat in the fridge and the excess goes in the freezer. Two or three days later, your fridge is empty. You start taking stuff out of the freezer, right? And the equivalent in that in a human being is your glycogen stores and your fat stores. Once your fat stores are empty, your body should change seamlessly into fat burning mode. A bit like a hybrid car moves seamlessly between the battery and the engine backwards and forwards. It doesn't grind to a halt. If you're inflexible and you lose that ability, and that's what most of us have happened, has happened to most of us, you lose that ability to seamlessly change from sugar burning mode to fat burning mode. Then you have this profound hypo, you feel dreadful. It's only happened to me once, but my God, it was horrible. It's about like what the marathon runners talk about when hitting the wall. So as I say, it's a process, get people eating the right macros, then start to separate the foods out, then go for some longer fasts. And during that process, you will switch on that metabolic flexibility. I think I think that's a really nice analogy. I think we can all associate with our freezers being absolutely chocked full with a whole load of stuff that we haven't accessed for a long time. And it's really important to be disciplined so that we don't just restock the freezer and don't empty it on a regular basis. So I, I like that analogy. Thank you. And um, I think a lot of people are asking about resources. And as I said, we will come back to that. I think Graham, you've given us a really good overview. I've really enjoyed it. And um, I think there are quite a few questions that have been answered. And I know David Unwin is in the background typing some answers as well. And um, people have asked for full day's meal plans. And again, we have links to that. So we will share that with you. Um, and we will put resources and things at the end. So Graham, thank you very, very much. Can I just one plug, uh, Camilla, for the Public yeah. Health Collaboration, which is a, it's a social movement for change. It's a charity. It's something that I think David originated. It's a, I'm a, an ambassador, public health collaboration. If you go to their website, there's a ton of free training resources for health professionals and there's tons of free stuff for your patients. And I know Karen, my partner, is a GP. She's used them loads. So if you want to start in one place, that's a brilliant place to start. Brilliant. Thank you.